0: I'm going to read from Matthew 9, verses 1 through 8. And getting into the boat, he crossed over and came to his own city. And behold, some people brought to him a paralytic lying on a bed. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Take heart, my son, your sins are forgiven. And behold, some of the scribes said to themselves, This man is blaspheming. But Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said,
1: Amen. This is God's Word. Now, we do put the Scripture up on the screen, but my hope is that you have your Bible with you because we're going to be all over the place and you want to make sure that what I'm saying is actually legit. So the way you do that is you bring your Bible and you open it up to where we're preaching and you make sure I'm not trying to pull a fast one on you. Every now and then I might just to test you. But, no, I won't. All right. And if you're new, we go straight through books of the Bible. We're in Matthew. We're in Matthew chapter 9. And we're going to be in there for a while. Um, last week, we learned that really there are only two responses uh, that people have when they meet Jesus Christ. And the two are very simple and they're very different. You're either going to beg to go with them or you're going to beg him to go away. That's it. Now... Last week we saw this crazy story of of Jesus interacting with these demon-possessed guys and they had a legion, which is several thousand demons in them, and he cast them out and he threw them into some pigs and and they all died and the people chose their bacon over uh, Jesus. Now, when he heals this demon-possessed guy, I mean, I, I say that facetiously, but literally the people beg him to go away because the economic prosperity of their of their country or their city their region has been really hindered and so they're like dude just leave us alone um, great that you healed uh, joey but this is um, costing us a lot of money and this scares us and so leave and so i think it's interesting that jesus um, without a rebuke without a oh okay you're going to be sorry but all he doesn't say any of those things He gets His disciples and they get in the boat and they cross back uh, over the Sea of Galilee to His hometown of Capernaum. Now, His hometown, uh, I say that, that's the the word or that's the um, town whenever in the Gospels Jesus talks about being at home or going back home, it's Capernaum, but He wasn't raised there. He was actually raised in a city that was uh, a little more west named Nazareth, which today is the Arab capital of Israel, which I think is interesting. Um, And obviously, he was born in Bethlehem, and he died in Jerusalem. So those four cities kind of make up where Jesus spends his time. So he's in Capernaum, and when he returns home, he had left crowds, and that's kind of why he left. News spreads pretty quickly, and the town and and others probably in local villages uh, surround the house that he's staying in, whether it's his house, we're not really sure. Um, He said he was homeless, so it's probably a friend's house, Uh, but he... It's crowded in this house. It's surrounded. No one can uh, really even get in the door. And everyone wants to hear Jesus teach. He's probably teaching from the doorway. Everyone or many want to be touched by you know His healing hand. They're bringing Him all kinds of sick and diseased people. There are also some teachers who have come to hear Jesus. And there are teachers from Galilee and from Judea and um, from Jerusalem. And more than likely, uh, they are kind of scout teams for this group called the Sanhedrin. And the Sanhedrin uh, was basically like the Jewish Supreme Court. Okay, So these scribes and different lawyers would come, and they are like uh, law expert, experts, experts in, in the law of Moses, and they wanted to test and see whether Jesus is some lawless, false prophet starting a cult, or, or who He is exactly. And so you'll see most of the times, or many times, Jesus is accused and 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 um, kind of argued with by lawyers and and scribes like this. So they're all hanging out, probably in the house with him, and there are so many people. As I said, they don't no get in the door. So this same incident that we read here about this paralytic is actually recorded in two other gospels. So you have four gospels: Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. They're basically the same story. Really, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are. are pretty much chronological tales and John is much more theological so he kind of mixes it up has no parables very different but Matthew Mark Luke and John are the same stories told from uh, different men's perspectives of the same birth and and life and death of Jesus Christ and so the same stories in Mark chapter 2 also in Luke but in Mark chapter 2 who writes a very colorful explanation in Matthew here it says that some people bring Jesus some people brought Jesus this paralytic dude that's all it says But in Mark, the story is much more uh, robust. And four men are bringing what it seems like their paralyzed friend to Jesus. And unable to get in, because the house is so surrounded and blocked, they climb up on the roof, which would have been flat and, and, and not like obviously our composite roofs today, kind of made of dirt and stubble hay stuff. And they start digging the roof out. Okay, so... They have, like, you know, beams like we would have. So they're dipping, like, a whole trench out. You know, just kind of. And it's not difficult to repair, actually. It's not, because it's not like the Northwest where it rains a lot over there. So they're digging it out, and they lower their friend or this guy down into right in front of Jesus. So he's like, you know, blessed be blessed. This guy starts coming down in front of him. Okay? Now, without question, um, this is a pretty faithful thing to do. And when I've heard sermons on this text, that's usually where the focus goes. Like, look at the faith of these guys. The faith to to get up and and to realize they've just got to get in the presence of Jesus. They're going to tear down, remove, do whatever they can to get to Jesus. Right? These guys are courageous. These guys are committed. These guys are creative. They're risking stuff. Like, risking people being upset. Like It's always about, look at the faith of these guys. Well, I'll tell you, that's not what the pastor's about. And without doubt, I think it's a pretty, pretty solid picture of of faith. I think it's a great truth to get out of it. But it's interesting that Matthew dumps all of that. Matthew doesn't tell us about the four friends that call on the roof. He doesn't tell us. Oh, well, it says four guys brought brought Jesus a paralytic. There's no roof at all in Matthew's tale. Because Matthew doesn't want us to see the faith of this guy, he doesn't want us to see the faith of his friends, he doesn't want to see the difficulty in what they'll do to get to Jesus. He just wants us to see Jesus. He wants us to see who Jesus is. He's got an agenda. When he was talking about the chaos of the storm, right? Matthew wanted to see that Jesus was the Lord of creation. When he's talking about this demon, demon attack, this legion of demons it's, it's infesting this guy and then plaguing this region, they want us to see that Jesus was the Son of God. The demons even say that. You're the Son of God, right? And here we see when he's healing this paralyzed man and arguing with these lawyers scribes guys, he wants us to see that Jesus is God incarnate. The only one who is truly capable of healing us. So we're going to talk about three things, okay? It all to do with healing. First of all is to talk about our real need for healing. Like what, what do we need to be healed of or by or of? Second is to talk about what is the thing that stopped? What's the enemy to healing? And then finally, how, do we, how, how are we healed? So let's talk about the need for healing. So some people, obviously perhaps as friends, bring this paralyzed guy to Jesus. So paralyzed, can't move. He's been on a bed. Uh, we don't know how he became paralyzed. We don't know if it's been a lifelong thing, if this happened at a job site. We don't know. Um, we don't know, um, obviously, how long he's been paralyzed. We don't even know if it was his idea to go see Jesus. Right? He could have be been laying there, I don't want to see Jesus. Right? Like, you're going. That's the only way you're going to. Who knows? What we, what we do know is that without the help of his friends, this guy's going nowhere. He's not getting near Jesus. And what is also clear is that his friends and himself, I'm assuming, realize that paralysis is not normal. Okay? You're duh, Pastor. Okay, right? But think about this. That paralysis is not... that The guy who is laying there ought not be laying there. You see, all the death And all the war and all the disease and all the hunger in our world declare something that everyone knows but few people will actually declare or admit that there is something deeply wrong with this created world that things are off I will be going to my grandmother's funeral next weekend 92 love Jesus she rocked and I will preach I don't know if I'll get the opportunity to preach, but you know, if there's an open mic, I will, right? So I'll preach the same thing I preach at other funerals to say, this is not the way things are supposed to be. People go, death is part of life. Like, no, it is now, but this is not what God wanted from the beginning. Yes, theologically, well, He always wanted it. You know what I'm saying? You don't have to be divorced to see that relationships are broken. You don't have to be homeless to see that communities are broken. You don't have to be paralyzed to see that bodies are broken. And I think it's a very powerful statement to see that the miracles of Jesus, all these miracles we're going to see that we've seen with the leprosy, and you'll see blind men, and you see a paralytic here, right? They show that every dying person, they show every suffering person, everyone who's hungry, that there is something more powerful than death and disease and hunger. That's what Jesus shows us. Like There's something more powerful than this stuff. There's something more powerful than your paralysis. There's something more powerful than than your hunger. There's something more powerful than your debt. Don't worry. And the crazy thing is, although Jesus shows us that, most beg Jesus to leave them alone. That's what most do. I don't need Jesus. I need a cure. I don't need Jesus. I need a raise or a new job. I don't need Jesus. I need a nicer spouse. I don't need Jesus. I need just a kid that will obey me. You've never said it, or maybe you have, but I guarantee you've thought it. And I don't want to minimize things like paralysis, but our problems can be, just our problems in life can be very paralyzing. And by paralyzing, I mean, we get stuck with whatever problem we have, whether it be re- relational, material, you know, economic, social, whatever it happens to be, with these problems, fast we problems I want to take my problems, right? We get, so we get paralyzed because we can't see a foreseeable end to them and every solution that we can imagine requires nothing short of a miracle. And So we don't know what to do. We just get stuck. I think we find ourselves unable to move and unable to make a decision and unable to really experience joy in our life because we can't take our eyes off these problems everywhere. All we can see is that our problem and all the energy that we have goes into getting rid of this problem or ignoring this problem or hiding from this problem or solving this problem and I'll tell you that there are all kinds of available saviors to pull you out of the hell that you now find yourself in what do you mean well the biggest pro what is your problem there's your hell I'm telling you, other than Jesus, there's lots of saviors out there that will promise to free you. And they'll just enslave you. Pastor friend of mine, he's, um, our church supports him. It's the Mission Church of Walla Walla. If you ever go out to Walla Walla and enjoy the wine down there, go check him out. Brian Hope, the stud. He said this, there are a million willing and inferior saviors out there from which we can choose and by which we can be utterly disappointed. So just ask yourself really like what what's your biggest problem right now? like what's what what's the thing? What's the thing getting the most heat? What's the thing that just like, oh, if it was that was gone. If that was fixed or if that was put into my life, everything would be great. All my worries would be gone because my problems would be resolved. See, I think most of us, um, and I say men as in just humans, like people, I think usually believe that the solution to whatever problem we have lies somewhere out there because we understand the nature of all problems. And we think a little more money is going to fix it, a different person is going to fix it, a better job is going to fix it, A certain cure is going to fix it. So this guy is coming to Jesus to solve what he sees as his biggest problem, which is he's paralyzed. Like if we were to take this guy, we go, that must be it, right? He's laying on a bed, doing nothing. That must be his problem. But the thing about Jesus is he sees way past his surface level problem to the heart. Jesus always deals with the heart. Now, this might surprise us as you read the Gospels, but um, and I say, no, I shouldn't say this surprises us because of this reason. We misunderstand why Jesus came. Jesus didn't come to fix every problem you have. Okay, he didn't come here to heal every person he could find of leprosy. You realize that he didn't heal every person he could have. There were people he passed by. There were people he walked away from. There was people he got in a boat and went across the river or the sea from. He didn't come to heal everyone's leprosy. He didn't come to, to cure everyone's blindness or paralysis or whatever forms of suffering. See, in comparison to the big problem we have, that's all those are very little. Very little and very temporary. Now, this shouldn't surprise us because before Jesus was born, this will remind us, an angel came to his dad, adopted dad, Joseph, because he's freaking out about to divorce Mary because she's like, yeah, I saw an angel and sorry. Right? Okay, so he's freaking out. Angel comes to him and what is he tell him about? this son that's going to be born, He says He's going to bear you a son, and you shall call His name Jesus, for He will save His people from their leprosy. No! From their paralysis. No! From their debt. No! From their sin. He's going to save His people from their sin. Later, when Jesus is hanging out in Matthew's house, right? We'll see this in later chapter 9. We've already gone through it a couple times. He's around this brood of tax collectors, these slime balls that are no better than, than, you know, basically brothel owners. Pharisees ask, Why are you eating with such a sick pile of dirt bags? Why are you eating with these guys? And Jesus says, What? Those who are well have no need of a physician. But those who are sick, okay, continues, go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice, for I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. See, so our problem is not that we don't believe we need a doctor, like some sort of help. We all recognize we've got problems. We all look at the world and go, this thing's broken. None of us have a problem understanding, like, okay, we need something, something's broken I need a doctor the problem is I think that we wrongly try to play doctor and self-diagnose and we're always wrong our problems are not primarily physical our problems are not primarily financial they're not relational they're not social they are spiritual see when you come to a place where you realize that your problem is spiritual you realize that nothing in this world can actually help you with it. The saviors that we pursue are always to solve one of those other kinds of problems. But when you realize it like okay I got a I got a heart issue and no amount of money is going to fix that. You think it is maybe but it's not. I got a heart issue that that another person in my life is not going to be able to fix. I need something else outside of this world so when Jesus comes to the paralytic he sees him coming down right what does he say to him verse 2 take heart my son your sins are forgiven now on the surface Joe Blow reading the text is like "That's not his problem that's not his problem Jesus, uh, he can't move. He's not like, this isn't just a relaxed way to come see you. Like, he's paralyzed. That's not his big problem, Jesus. Be careful telling Jesus he's wrong, right? That's not always a good practice. But, that's what they're thinking. Take heart, my son, your sins are forgiven. Like, when we consider most of our problems, when we think about that, when you think about whatever problem it is, right, whether it be your relationship, whether it be a tremendous debt you have, Or a debilitating disease, few or if any of us really believe that our problem is a sin problem. Maybe somebody else's sin, but certainly not ours. And I'm not trying to suggest that all disease or suffering is a direct result of our sin. What I'm saying is that our biggest problem is not disease. Or some kind of suffering, though I think these kinds of things often bring that bigger problem to light. Our relationship with our problem often reveals the problem in our relationship with God. Our big problem is sin. What is sin? I'm so glad you asked. Someone was thinking it, right? What's sin? Well. The basic definition that you probably most commonly hear is what's his disobedience to God's law? They disobey Him, that's what sin is. Leading many to believe that our problems are caused merely by our bad choices. Well, you made a sinful choice, therefore that's why you're suffering, right? If you stopped disobeying God, you wouldn't have problems. Okay? I'm about to blow that baby out of the water. You ready for this? Okay does describe sin certainly an aspect of sin is disobedience to God's law but that's a very incomplete picture can't remember who said it might have been Kierkegaard but I think it was said this way sin at its core is building your life on a foundation other than God It's building your life on a foundation other than God that's the heart of sin like what about lying okay that's that's sin but when we talk about the heart of it what it is it's building your life on a foundation other than God. And what happens oftentimes when that foundation gets slapped out, everything falls apart, but we'll get to that later. Without question, when we break God's law, when we lie, when we commit adultery, whatever, we sin. But we only break, catch this, we only break God's law when we are building our life on something other than God. Let me prove it to you. Simple example. What I'm trying to say is that Before we sin, we're sinning. Okay. We're already making something more important than God when we break His law. For example, we're making something other than God more important when we lie. Why do we lie? Well, you lie namely because you want someone else to feel better about you. You want to put up a false picture of yourself so they don't... You don't get in trouble, or they're not disappointed or whatever. That's why we lie. So what you're really worshiping is their approval. You want their approval more than you want God's. You have forgotten that you have God's approval in Christ, and so you lie in order to get it. So before you lie, you're already worshiping something else. As Luther would say, you already broke the first commandment before you break any other. for sin we need a better definition. We need a better definition. When a doctor tells us that we have it doesn't exist, but you can imagine what it might be, right? You want to know everything about it. Like you've got gonosipa-herpal-aids. Okay. What's that? Like Google it, right? You're just looking. What is it? I want to know every di- tell me every aspect. How does this affect me? What does this do? That's like sin. Like many of you grew up in the church and you thought, okay, what's sin? Well, here's your list. You don't swear You don't drink. You don't sleep around, right? And you're like, okay, that's sin. No, no, I want to blow it up much bigger, maybe perhaps take it deeper. So if we say, you got this condition, it's called sin, you go, what is that? How does that affect me? What does that make me do? How does that make me think? What kind of substances are going to come out of my nose? Like, what? What happens? So just imagine this is me Googling for you, right? The Bible uses three different words to describe sin. It uses... Iniquity, I won't tell you the Hebrew word. Look in the notes because I'll probably mispronounce it. So iniquity, sin, and transgression. And they mean three different things, but they all describe sin. So let me just explain it to you. So you go, okay, this is, my, this is my problem. My biggest problem is this. So when we talk about iniquity, what that means is to be twisted out of shape. right? Just be twisted out of shape. We're broken. Like a bone out of its socket. You're broken. And when an arm or a bone is out of its socket, it doesn't function very well. In fact, it's very painful to try and use it. It also makes us very weak, right? Our bodies break down really easily. One time I had a pinched nerve. I don't even know where it was. Somewhere in here, I was playing basketball, which is a bad decision for me at any time. But I was playing basketball, and I had a pinched nerve, and I was playing, and this guy went to like, you know, like, I don't know, may have stole the ball in this miraculous, you know, steal. And I was going to baseball throw the ball down the court. And so I got it and went, poof, and the ball goes, like, right in front of me. Like, what just happened? Ah, uh, no big deal. So I start shooting. I go to shoot. It goes, just dropped. I had no strength in my arm. It was, like, gone. Okay? I walked off the court at that point. I was like, done. I don't know what's going on. But the point is, when things are not working, when you're broken, when, you're, when your bones are out of socket, it's painful. It's weak. You end up having very distorted beliefs of God, of yourself, because it's not correct. It's twisted out of shape. That's iniquity. Sin twists things out of shape. We also have the word sin, which actually means to miss the mark, right? To fall short. Fall short of God's glory. Romans 3.23, for all of sin and fall short of God's glory. It's not only twisted and broken, we're... We're short. We are failing to live out what God expects of us. And sometimes that means we're very hateful, we're very active. Other teams, it means we're just not loving as we ought. We fall short. right? We go, well, I didn't commit murder, but you might have hated your brother and not loved him. Remember the Sermon on the Mount? We hate when we shouldn't and we don't love when we should. We essentially live for our own glory and not God's That's sin by falling short of where we should be we are less than what God has called us to be and then lastly is transgression what's transgression well transgression is flat-out rebellion so you're twisted out of shape you're also falling short and you're also rebellious against the one to whom you owe allegiance Though we are broken and though we are deceived, we are still responsible for our actions and our disobedience is deliberate. We decide to disobey His will in all these things. So this is sin. We're broken, we're twisted, we're rebellious. And that causes what we'll just call spiritual paralysis. We are unable to see well we're unable to move well we are unable to live as God intended us to that's the problem so what's the enemy to us being healed of that well here's the enemy ready it's really simple actually our unwillingness to confess our sin is the enemy to healing that can look like different things typically it looks like blame shifting and pointing out Outward, because we dare not look inward and think that we have the problem. So as Jesus says that, like, "Oh, your sins are forgiven, now you got the um, Supreme Court Scout team listening, right? They're listening like, "What did he just say? No, he didn't, right? What did he just say? He's forgave sins. Now, they understand what he's saying very well. And it infuriates them because they know the law, and Jesus just committed, in their eyes, blasphemy. And blasphemy basically is to slander the name of God, in this case by claiming to be able to do something that only God can do, which is forgive sins. So Jesus, in this passage and others, claims to be God. Jesus is God. Okay, If we weren't certain about that. And so they are um, thinking about how they're going to find a pile of stones to kill Jesus. Because that's what the law would require. Okay, once these crowds disperse, what are we going to do, guys? Because He just committed blasphemy. They don't say anything, but Jesus can read their minds. It's all over their face, right? Some would say, well, Jesus knows what they're thinking because He's omniscient. Maybe. I think more so, He just can read people really well and they're like you know it's not not hard to figure out what's going on so more than likely they're scheming about how they're going to carry this out and the truth is it's only blasphemy if it's not true right now this isn't the last time Jesus will be Well, Jews will pick up stones in several places to stone him for claiming to be God. And they know their law very well, and they know their faith very well, and they do that several times. The Jews also believed, in this culture, it's important to know, that they believed that sin actually caused paralysis. They actually thought that sin and and, and disease and suffering were were spiritually connected. Blindness, leprosy, all those things, that was because of sin. And we see this in, in... Several ways, like when Job, the great suffering of Job, like when he experiences great sufferings, inflicted, um, his, his family is killed, his wealth is robbed, his, uh, his body gets diseased, all kinds of things happen to him. His friends, his great friends, come up and like, What'd you do? Like, you must have some hidden sin somewhere. Because that's what their connection was. Even Jesus' own disciples, when you get to John chapter 9, Um, Jesus is going to heal a blind man, and before they, they heal a blind man, his own disciples go, okay, well, who sinned? This guy or his parents? Like, someone sinned. This is what caused it. Now, you'll notice, interestingly, that when Jesus forgives his sins, the guy doesn't jump up and walk, does he? I just noticed that. I never really thought about that. like you're forgiven and he doesn't get up so perhaps they would have reacted differently if he gotten up right away and at this point I'm not sure if he's physically healed it's not clear whether he's physically healed or not well he's just like waiting okay now Jesus now like he just maybe just isn't healed yet but he's healed right he's healed but he's not healed Now they may have reacted differently if he had popped up and like, "Woo! I'm forgiven, I'm healed. He is healed, but he cannot walk. He is healed, but he cannot walk. He is healed, but his problem isn't gone. I don't know if that brings me comfort or what, but I know it's true. He's healed where it matters, but he can't walk yet. Now the men accusing Jesus, though, interestingly and ironically, they can walk, but they're not healed. Right? And because of their belief, like these men, they're not diseased. These men are not suffering. They're not paralyzed. So what would that lead them to maybe believe? Perhaps they're without sin. see it's not that these men don't need healing it's that they don't think they do they're blind to it they're blind to the real problem they believe because they don't have these other problems God must love them when in truth they're really broken inside this guy's not but he's broken on the outside Reminds me, actually, if you turn in your Bibles to John chapter 5, this is a, a passage that you may be familiar with, may not. There's another paralyzed guy that Jesus interacts with. And it's a strange interaction. It says that after this, there was a feast of the Jews and Jesus went up to Jerusalem and there was in Jerusalem by, by the sheep gate a pool, an Aramaic called Bethesda, which has five roofed colonnades. And in these lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. And one man was there who had been an invalid for 38 years. It's a long time. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been there a long time, like John puts this, like he knew he'd been there for 38 years and been sitting at this place for a long time. He said to him, do you want to be healed? Now let's just stop you, right? Like seriously, Jesus? This paralyzed guy's laying here. You know he's been hurt for many years. You know he's just lay- like, do you want to be healed? Surely he does, right? Do you want to be healed? The sick man answered him, "Sir, I have no one to put me into the pool." When the water is stirred up, and while I'm going, another steps down before me. And Jesus said to him, Get up, take up your bed, and walk. And at once the man was healed, and he took his bed up and walked. Now Jesus gets in trouble for healing on the Sabbath, and he has an argument, but then he later interacts with this guy again in verse 14. It says, Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple, this guy, and he said to him, See, you are well. Sin no more. What was the real problem? It wasn't his paralysis. See, the question that Jesus asks may seem silly. Like, that just seems like a foolish question to a paralyzed guy. But what Jesus is really asking is whether or not this man wants to be forgiven of his sin. And in order for him to actually be forgiven of his sin, he has to recognize that he has sinned to be forgiven of. See, people, I think, are either... We talk about the enemy to healing. People are either too prideful or too ashamed to receive forgiveness. They're either too prideful or they're too ashamed. They either don't believe they have a problem with sin or they're too ashamed that, to admit that they do. They either feel priceless and ought not Or worthless and ought not. Jesus came to do more than just free our bodies to walk. I've been using the phrase this week that Jesus came to free our hearts to walk. Jesus came to free us from the pride that says, I have it all together. I don't like these other problems here, but. In here, I got it all together. Jesus came to free us from that because it's not God honoring. But he also came to free us from the shame to be too afraid to admit that we don't have it all together. That I'm lost, that I'm screwed up, that I'm addicted, that I'm broken, that I'm rebellious, that I struggle. Good old Tim Keller always says it best on a Twitter post than I can ever say in like 45 minutes, right? He said, The irony of the gospel is that the only way to be worthy of it is to admit that you're completely unworthy of it. The irony of the gospel is that the only way to be worthy of it is to admit that you're completely unworthy of it. It's beautiful. So the enemy to healing is ourselves our flesh and our our blindness to the real problem so what does jesus do how does he free our hearts exactly and it's pretty amazing jesus heals us through the faith that he has forgiven us on the cross now he responds to the silent accusations of these guys right in in verse five and six He tells him in verse 5, for which is easier to say, guys, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise and walk. I could just as easily say one or the other. He said, But that you may know that the Son of Man, talking about himself, has authority on earth to forgive sins. And he then said to the paralytic, Rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And he does. And walked, he didn't walk at that point. And he's healed. He'd already been healed, but now he's healed in his body. See, knowing their their beliefs about sickness, he tells them flat out, it's easier to tell a man to rise and walk. That's easy. But so that they know that Jesus came to deal with the root cause of our brokenness, Jesus does what's impossible for a man to do. There are plenty of people, even the disciples themselves, who would heal And because this paralyzed guy does rise up and walk, when Jesus says, he not only reveals his authority to heal and to forgive sins, because he says, I could say either one, he also reveals who the true blasphemers are in the house. And it's not Jesus. See, this point of this passage has nothing to do with the faith of the men lowering down the paralytic, though it's a beautiful picture has nothing to do with this man having his body fixed. His big problem that as he sees it, resolved. It has everything to do with faith in Jesus to fix a broken heart even if He never fixes your broken body. Jesus came to fix your broken heart and He may not fix your broken body in this life. He may not take away that problem that you're having to deal with in this life. But that's not why He came. Every problem we have, every problem we have is a result of a broken heart that's prone to wander. We want to finger point and we want to blame. We want to see the cause of our current entrenchment as something outside of ourselves and I'm telling you it's not. Your sin may not have created the problem, but I believe your sin is keeping it one. I mean, sometimes our sin certainly causes problems in our life. But a lot of times, our sin restrains us from dealing with the problem well. It still goes back to a heart issue that Jesus has to deal with. Jesus solves and heals our heart problem, the root of all problems, by dying on the cross for our sins. And it's not that Jesus is the only one willing to help us. As I've said, there's lots of Saviors. It's that He's the only one qualified to. What does that mean? Let me just break it down as we close out here. Jesus is the only one qualified to fix your heart problem. And anyone who has, which is everyone, heart problem we need to begin by confessing and seeing and, and, and having our eyes open oftentimes and maybe all the time to the fact that we're a sinner that we are broken that we are twisted out of shape that we don't see things as we ought that we are rebellious and then we see Jesus and we we see Jesus as the only one who can forgive us because he's the Son of man well what's that mean? Well, the Son of Man was the title given to the prophetic king in Daniel. And it was the king who would come and he would rule and he would be judged. See, the only one with the authority to forgive sins is the one that you have sinned against. And what does David pray in Psalm 51 when he's confessing the fact that he committed adultery and he... he end up killing the woman's husband or arranging for his death and, and all these other Israelites who died and he lied and all these terrible things and even the child who was born died because of his sin under a curse of God. And what does he say in Psalm 51? Against you and you alone have I sinned. I could give you a list of the people he sinned against, but it was against God. And so as the Son of Man, as the King who is the one who has truly been sinned against, He is the only one with the right to forgive sins. But He's more than that. He's not just the Son of Man. Jesus is the only one that can forgive because He's the Son of God. What does that mean? It means He's God incarnate. It means that when we see Jesus die on the cross, we're seeing God die. What does that even mean? It means that, think about this, man's blood isn't clean enough to cover one sin. Let alone the sins of all who would be forgiven. Jesus' blood isn't just any blood. Jesus' blood is God's blood. Jesus' blood is of infinite weight. An infinite ability to cover it may cover any sin for anyone. So for those who sit in shame and those who sit in guilt and like, you don't know what I did. I think Paul felt most of the time. The guy killed Christians. And he held tightly to the grace of God knowing that his sin had been covered. Knowing his sin had been forgiven. And knowing that the weight of that sin was the only thing heavy enough and valuable enough and comprehensive enough to forgive him. But He's not just the Son of Man. He's not just the Son of God. He's the Son of Mary. What do I mean? Jesus is the only One that can forgive us because He was not just fully God. He was fully man. I need someone to live the life that I was supposed to live perfectly. I need someone to die the death that I deserved in my place to represent me perfectly. To be tempted in every way I ever could be and yet without sin perfectly. And so nailed to the cross, unable to move like a paralyzed man, what does He say? Father, forgive them. For they know not what they do. Only Jesus can do that. Only Jesus can do that. And only Jesus, three days later, can rise from the dead and say, done. Sin and Satan and death have been conquered. Until you see the one from whom you need forgiveness is the one who paid the price of forgiveness, you'll die in your sins. You'll die in your guilt. You'll die in your shame. And I'm telling you, Jesus doesn't want you there. He's showing you not only the weight of your sin on that cross, but the love that He has for you in willingly going to it. And one day, by God's grace, Jesus will restore our physical bodies. He will. It will be awesome. One of the reasons why we're naming the church Restoration Road is to remind us of the future glory we're going to experience. That our problems may not all go away. Our diseases may not all be cured in this life, but one day they will. But right now, guess what we can experience? Restored hearts. Free hearts. Forgiven hearts. There's nothing to achieve. There is nothing to do only to confess and believe. That's it. It's free. So for those who have been Christians for a long time, okay? I wonder if you've been living in the forgiveness of Christ. Have you been living in the forgiveness of Christ? How do I know that? How do I know if I'm living in the forgiveness of Christ? Well, let me quote a, philo- a philosopher, Kierkegaard who says this, okay? A person rests in the forgiveness of sins when our thoughts of God do not remind us of one's sins but rather of the fact that they have been forgiven. So what has happened in the past is now not a remembrance of how badly one did, but how much one was forgiven. When you think of your faith, when someone asks you, how's your walk? Which I'm sure you've had that question before. Where does your mind naturally go? Does your mind go to what you have done? Or what you're doing? or what you might do because if it is it's in the wrong place. You're focused on a minor problem. You need to recognize that the big problem has been taken care of by what Jesus has done for you. When we think of our faith, it should go to the cross. When we think of our past, we should go to the cross. When we start fearing what we might do in the future, making it go to the cross. It doesn't matter what you do or it doesn't matter what you've done. It matters what you believe that Jesus has done for you. There is really only one problem in our lives, and Jesus has solved it for you. So don't be afraid. Live free. Live free in His approval, free in His love, free in His forgiveness. We take communion every Sunday to remind us of that. And as you come to the table, guess what you're bringing with you? A bunch, a pile of sin. You're bringing all the mistakes you made, all the things you should have said or didn't say or did say, all the ways you hated and the ways you didn't love, all the ways you fell short, all the ways you rebelled, all the ways things twisted out. You bring it to the table and Jesus says, I know. I know. Covered. Covered. Forgiven. Free. I love you. When we come, two songs. I would invite you to really be thoughtful about what you're doing. You come and get the elements for for you and for your family. We'll sing two songs and we'll take and partake together because Jesus didn't just die for a person. He died for a church. He died for a family of families like us. And I pray that you will sing in celebration out of your forgiveness, out of knowing that He knows. Don't sit in your guilt. Don't sit in your shame. Sit in His love. He loves you. Let's pray. Oh, Holy Father, I thank You for healing us. Healing us of our real problems. I pray this morning, Lord, that You will take our eyes off of all of the hundreds of things that are going on in our lives that we consider problems, the things that we're trying to find solutions to, and we will see, Father, that the only problem we truly have has been solved by Jesus Christ. And Father, for those who are sitting in here in their guilt and their shame and their brokenness for what they may have done, for those who are paralyzed by their past or paralyzed by their presence, I pray You will free them by telling them you're forgiven. And for those who are prideful, Father, for those who are Christians who are sitting pretending like they don't need forgiveness, pretending like that was done in the past, they're done with sin, Lord, would You open their eyes to see their need for Jesus, their need for their own confession. And then would You hold high the cross of Jesus Christ in our lives, so that when we consider the quality of our faith, when we think about how, quote, good we're doing, what our relationships like with You, Father? It will not go to the things that we have done or the things that we have not done, but it will go to what Jesus has done for us. It is in His name that we pray. It is in His name that we hope. And we ask that He will come quickly. In the name of Jesus we pray. Amen.